0: See in our passage tonight in um, Numbers 13 is a little bit of um, paragraph 3. Essentially, what faith is, it? it's the gifted, the grace, the ability to believe in God, to believe the Word of God. And what paragraph 3 there says in the sanctification passage is the strength of that faith goes up and down. And um, sometimes we believe less strongly and more strongly, and sometimes we don't believe at all, even true believers, but faith gets the victory. Numbers 13. This is a somewhat hard book to, to preach, but I, I'll just tell you, um, I'm actually loving... Um, preparing sermons in the book of Numbers. I'm I'm learning just so much. It's exciting for me. Um, Numbers 13, verse 1. Hear the holy word of our holy God. Then the Lord God spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them, Moses sent them out from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were the heads of the sons of Israel. These then were the names from the uh, tribe of Reuben, Shemua the son of Zakur, and the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat the son of Hore, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Igal the son of Joseph, from the tribe tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun Gadiel the son of Zodi from the tribe of Joseph from the tribe of Manasseh Gadai the son of Susi from the tribe of Dan Emiel the son of Gamali from the tribe of Asher Sethur the son of Michael from the tribe of Naphtali Napi the son of Avossi from the tribe of Gad Guel the son of Machai these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land But Moses called Hosea the son of Nun, Joshua. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they open like camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make it effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Libo, Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, Talmi, the descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eskal, which means cluster, And from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men, with some of the pomegranates and the figs. The place that was called the Valley of Eshcol, because of the cluster which the Son of Israel cut down from there. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of the forty days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron, all the congregation of the sons of Israel, in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the Lamb. Thus they told him, and he said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites, the Amorites, are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all of the people whom we saw in it are men of great size." There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would have mercy upon me, uh, uh, Lord God, tonight in the proclamation of your word, that you would guide me, thou my great Jehovah, in the words of my heart and the the words of my lips would be pleasing in your sight and they would be true according to your word and the content and even the delivery lord would be um would be um receptive to your people and father if there's anyone that hears uh, the words of this sermon that uh, is uh, heretofore unconverted that holy spirit you would do what i'm not able to do that you would take the word and apply it and convert them to christ join them to the family And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this particular uh, passage, again, we're going to, a little bit of a historical narrative um, here. If we could step back and kind of get a a macro view of of what's going on, and then we'll descend down and look at some of the, the particulars. The passage itself doesn't say that it's a warning passage but it's a warning passage. So if you know your Bible, um, the historical context, and usually we know our New Testament better than our Old Testament. I certainly know my New Testament better than the Old. But Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this particular generation, even the men of military age. And it says these men, these spies and so on, and the whole slew of military age men, uh, they were unbelievers, and God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. We've said before, God only has wrath on unbelievers, and he has fatherly chastisement on believers. And so this is a warning passage. Do not be like them. I want to say the book of Jude. I know it's there's one chapter, but I want to say it's chapter 1, maybe verse 24. It says these people are unbelievers, the, the, the people giving the bad report. So it's a warning passage. The other passage that uses this historical situation and says... Um, It actually shows the continuity of the people of the covenant. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 10, maybe 1 through 14. Our religious forefathers all all walked through the cloud. They were baptized. It uses the New Testament sign as applied to the Old Testament saint. And the New Testament applies the Old Testament sign to the New Testament saint. We were circumcised. They were baptized. And you see what I'm getting at. But the point is, in 1 Corinthians, it says, here's a bad example by your religious grandfathers and grandmothers, as it were. They defected from the word of God. They were afraid of man more than they were afraid of God. Therefore, don't be like them. So when we come here, we have to say, what kind of passage is it? It's very much a warning passage. And so this is a warning passage that we would not have an evil heart of unbelief. Clearly, the, the things that are going on is they fear man more than they fear God. I'm not picking on them, but clearly that's what's going on. And these men are fearing the word of man and adhering to the word of man and they're denying the word of God. Which, of course, is the great lie from Genesis chapter 3 onward. Listen to the voice of the devil and those being uh, moved along by the devil versus the word of God. So who will win is ultimately what's going on. Will it our fear of man win or will the fear of God triumph? Will our adherence to the word of man win out? Don't go into the land... Or will we we be faithful to the word of God and to the promised land? So this is a bit of um, learning what to do by looking at a particular um, uh, bad example. And so um, the the context is the people of God have left Egypt. They're traveling uh, towards Canaan, the promised land, for a little bit. They're right at the border of the promised land, and so we have these reconnaissance spies going in to spy out the land, which seemingly seems wise. I'm gonna argue it's an expression of sin in just a bit. And so the people come back and they give their report. Mostly it's a bad report. And so they are persuading, and the spies, the, the ten spies are more persuasive than the two spies. The ten spies went out. We know that they went out and persuading the people, because when we come to chapter fourteen next week, the people of God rebel against God. They say, we're not going. (laughs) And so this is, what does the Bible say? Is it Romans 15 and maybe 1 Corinthians 10? This is written for our instruction. And so this is here for us. Sometimes we learn, we learn two ways, precept and practice. So you have a command and then you have an example of what to do. So Jesus tells us what to do, love God and love man, and then he shows us. And so we learn best by imitation. And so we are learning by what not to do. That, that's this. And we know ultimately that this is a disciplined pr- passage because not only will these 10 men not make it into the promised land, but God is going to take an 11, it should have taken 11 days. It says in maybe Deuteronomy chapter 2, it should have taken 11 days to walk from uh, Egypt to, to the promised land. 11 days. So instead of 11 days, they're going to walk for how many days? For 40 years. So an 11-day hike turned into a 40-year trek. And the reason it's going to turn into a 40-year trek is God says, I'm going to run you around in circles for 40 years so the whole generation of military-aged men that wouldn't obey me, they die in the wilderness. And later they're going to say, we're so worried about our little kids and our wives, and that's why we, we won't go in. He says, okay, I'll take care of your wives and your kids. They're going to make it in. You're not making it in. That's what's going on. And so what we're seeing is um, disobedience to a clear command of God can sometimes have fairly serious deleterious consequences. It can either be judgment for a false professor in the household of faith, an unbeliever in the the visible church, or a fatherly chastisement for a sinning uh, believer in the visible household of faith now let's look at let's just walk through it kind of uh in a homiletical fashion just to plow through it chronologically so you have the commissioning and, and then you have the um, and then you have the some other things associated but let's look at the commissioning here we're told in our passage that um, God is the one that tells Moses go commission these twelve men as um, spies I used to know there's two words primary two words for A spy in Hebrew. I don't know why I know this, but it'll come to me usually at two o'clock in the morning. I'll tell you if it comes to me in this sermon. Um, So so here we're told, God says to Moses, go get me some spies. But actually what has happened, the book of Deuteronomy tells us it's the people themselves that put forth to Moses the idea of a spy. God just acquiesces here. And let me read that to you because it's very significant for the whole narrative. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1, I thought it was 2, but it's 1. This is um, the word, one, uh, verse 21. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you, this is Moses, as to take possession as the Lord the God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then, then all of you people approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us the word of the way by which we should go up, and the cities which we shall enter. This thing pleased me, Moses, and I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe. So the first is the, is the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 1 account. The people themselves say, you know what, we need, a, we need spies. We need spies to take us from this wilderness area and lead us and show us how to get into the promised land and where we should go and so on and so on. Is the land good or is the land bad? We need spies for that. I just want that to percolate a little bit. Do the people of God need a spy, 112 or 112? Do they need a human spy to lead them through the wilderness lead them into the promised land, show them where they're to go first, and is the land good or or bad? Do they need a spy for that? Um, it, It seems at the outset very reasonable that they should do this. However, this is a big however. God has already promised to be and has been their front guard and their rear guard. He has been the pillar of smoke by day. He has been the pillar of fire by night. He has been the one that fights their battles. He brings them out of Egypt. They didn't, they didn't sling a stone. With a mighty hand, he brought them out. He brought the plagues. He, he drowned uh, Pharaoh and his whole army in, in the sea. He brought them through the Red Sea. He told them, be still and know that I am the Lord. Don't do anything. I'll do everything. He killed all of their enemies. He preserved all of his people. And he said... I am bringing you to a land flowing with milk and honey over and over and over again. From Genesis 13, when he promises to Abraham, I am going to do this. All of these various people that you see, they're all gone. I'm going to do it. So do they need spies to show them where to go, what to do, any of it. They don't. God has already said, I am going to do it. And he has been doing it. What these people are saying is, we need the the word of man to confirm the word of God. What do you call that, beloved? If someone says, I'm going to read another book other than the Bible to confirm that the Bible, the word of God, is the word of God. What do you call that? That's called unbelief. It's dressed up like belief. It's dressed up like prudence or being shrewd. It seems shrewd to send a spy. God is your spy. (laughs) He's led you the whole way. He's going to lead you the whole way for forty years. He's going to bring you in. How will will Jericho be taken? And the walls come a tumbling down. So this is the God that they they serve. This is the the only God that is. And these men simply don't believe it. They want spies. This is very similar. Again, if you know your Bible, we should be. We all say that we're Bible believing Christians, and I hope we are all Bible believing Christians. It's way easier to say, <laughs> we're Bible believers, than actually use our Bible. And if you use your Bible, which of course we should, then you will know. Remember with the people came to Samuel, and they said to Samuel, we want a king. And what did Samuel do? Oh, he was, he was heartbroken. He, he said to himself, and then to God, God, they're rejecting me. And God said, no, 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 Samuel, you have it wrong. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Because the people said, no, no, we know, God, you say you're our king. We want a real king. Imagine saying to God, no, you're a king and everything, but we want a real king. You remember what they said? We want a real king like the nations. We want to be like the nations, the Gentiles. You're the Jews, you're the favorite people of God. But we want to be like the Gentiles. We want a guy, a man. And you remember what God said? You are forsaking me. So they're saying, we don't want God to lead us into the promised land. We don't want God to do these things. We, we need men to confirm this. This is exactly the same they did when they had a king. And you remember what God said. He said, now listen, if you have a king, it's going to go poorly. He's going to take all your taxes. He's going to take your, the best sons you have, the best daughters. It's not going to go well for you. And what do they say? We don't care. We want one. He says, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you Saul. How'd he work out? This is exactly what's going on. So it looks like an expression of being wise or shrewd, but it's dressed up unbelief. And what they're doing is the contrary, and I'm not saying the positive duty is easy. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are required as believers, they were required as believers to do what? To walk by what? To walk by faith and not by sight. God said, I'm going to take you there, I'm going to take care of the enemies. How are you going to do that? I'll tell you when I get there. We don't like that, beloved. I do not like that. I want the one-year plan, the five-year plan. I do not like to walk by faith, Sam. I am. I want you to tell me exactly how it's going to be. But that's not the—that's not the practice. They're flipping that on its head. What they're doing is saying we're not going to walk by faith. We need—we need—we're we need, going to walk by sight. We need boots on the ground, boy. That—that's not how it's going to work. This is going to go poorly for them. We know that this is an expression of sin because when we come to the end of the chapter, in chapter 14, God's going to say, the whole lot of you are not going to go to heaven. That's how, that's how upset he is with this. I don't mean the whole entity of the, of the people. I mean all of the military age uh, men. And so they want a man to confirm the word of um, uh, God. Now, I want to sympathize with these particular people a little bit So it's easy, is it not, to point out when someone makes an error or a fault. It's very easy. Oh, look, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. Um, If we were to climb into their shoes, and there's a reason that they're afraid, and they're afraid. So they want these men to confirm the word of God now because they're afraid. The reason they're afraid is because the promised land is very, very near. And what do I mean by that? It's the nearness of Canaan in the nearness or the soonness of entering into the promised land, that's making them extra afraid now. Why? They know that when they're given, the Bible says, I will give you the promised land. They already know how they're, get, how, how they're receiving uh, the promised land from the Canaanites. How are they receiving it? By fighting. They know that. And so what's happening is, because they know that the contest is about to start, they become inordinately afraid. Now, I think we ought to sympathize. They're sinning, but I think we ought to sympathize with them. Most of us are super saints when the need for faith is far away. (laughs) When there's no danger afoot and everything's going swimmingly, we are just the best Christians. Um, we're We're just there we are. And you remember the Apostle Peter makes that sinful boast. I'm the greatest, I'm the best, not even afraid of dying. No, no worries here, I'm the best. So his faith is very, very strong when there's no testing time. But when he comes to an occasion of, are you one of those Galileans? And you're this close to dying? What does he say? I don't even know who he is. So it's the it's the nearness of the trial that excites them to fear, which I think... We, well, we'd, we'd love to believe that we would not be these people. We would love it. We would love to believe that we wouldn't be the people at the cross crying, crucify, crucify. Um, Jesus is in saving sinners business. And then what we're told here is that when they tell Moses we need spies, what does Moses say? And this, this suggestion did what to Moses? This pleased him. <laughs> This is why the church does not save. Christ alone saves. I know he uses the church as an instrument. I know that. Moses does not know what's in the heart of these men. He, they say, we want this, this idea. And what he says is, oh, this is an expression of their intended fidelity to the command. Oh, they're going to obey. And this is just a way, a way to uh, uh, obey with more wisdom. So he's on board with it. But they're not desiring this from a good motive. This comes from unbelief, and Moses doesn't know it. What does it tell us about the minister? He's just a man. He's just a man. He doesn't know the heart. Even the best of ministers. When I when people join the church, I ask you for a credible profession of faith. I check the Google and make sure I can't see any any recent mugshots, and then you're in. <laughs> because I can't see the I can't see the heart. Only God can see the heart. But we learn something else. Sometimes unbelief can dress up and look just like what? Belief. Sometimes faithlessness can dress itself up and look like what? Faithfulness. And we can't catch it. But God can. So even the best of servants, Moses is the best of servants, and he does not know. However, I will say this even though we can't know what's in their hearts god alone knows what's in their hearts the bible does say eventually we can't kind of can know even fallibly certainly what's in the heart we can know what's in the heart of these, these spies in the military age men by looking out to the fruit that it produces so what comes out of this this is in matthew chapter 12 what comes out of our lips is the product of what our heart So if we have unbelief in the heart or sedition against God in the heart, it's going to come out. So an evil heart will produce evil fruit. So I can't look at the heart immediately, but later I can look at the fruit that it produces and say, that comes from an evil heart. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 3, take care against an evil heart of unbelief. That's this. How did you know they have an evil heart of unbelief? Because they said, don't listen to God, listen to us. That's unbelief. But we can learn that subsequent. This is why, I, I, is it 2 Peter, when it says, add this to this, and, and when you add this, you make your calling and your election sure. Can we know the eternal decree of God infallibly? Well, we can't on the front end, but we, can't with the, we can with the fruits. Do we believe in Christ? Do we love Christ? Do we chase Christ? Do we live for Christ? That's a believer. Does that make sense? And so these people make it by Moses, but they don't make it by God. And now in our passage, God agrees. God says, okay, have the spies. Now, is this God acquiescing or being complicit in their sin? Is this God being complicit in their sin? He can't be complicit in their sin because of James 1.13. God is not the author of sin, but he agrees to their sinful request. Does God sometimes agree to the sinful requests of the creature? Yeah. He just did this. In Numbers, the, the book of Numbers is so exciting to me because all I see is us. I see us. In Numbers chapter 11, grumble, grumble, grumble. We don't, this lousy manna, the lousy water from the rock, and we need quail, we need meat. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to come out of your nose. He agrees with their lust. And He gives them what they lust for, but it's not a blessing. It's a curse. He's going to do the very same thing. We want, we want, we want, we want. Here you go. You can have the the spies, but the spies are not going to be a blessing. How do I know that? Would you rather walk 11 days in the desert or would you rather walk 40 days in the desert? Would you rather walk 40, 11 days in the desert with your older brother and your dad or would you rather walk around for 40 years until they die? You see what I'm saying. He, g- he gives them what they want, either judicially as a judicial punishment to the unbelievers in the household of faith or as a chastisement to the sinning believer in the household of faith. I'm making the distinction, wrath to unbeliever, chastisement to believer, Hebrews 12. So one is judicial, the other is filial or fatherly. So he permits this, and this is the judgment of God. And listen to what God the Holy Spirit puts in the hymnal, as it were, I know that my psalm, and the only people would be upset with me if I called it a hymnal, but Psalm 81.10. This is what God the Holy Spirit inspires I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up for the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. My people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. That's this. So this is written for our instruction, and is put in the hymnal. It's part of worship. And so regularly, Sabbath in and Sabbath out, we're to see that this sad ability to be more afraid of man than we are of God it's present in all of us. It is present in all of us. I wish all of us just had this rock-solid, never faltering faith, um, but that's not the case. So then we have the actual selection of the tribes. Uh, Twelve spies are chosen, obviously as representatives of the whole. And so the notion is what they what they are act as they act. They're acting as representatives of the entire people. So their actions are indicative of all of the people. This is why, again, I don't mean to believe Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. And, and if you could bring that in, Luke 17 and in uh, Luke chapter 18, most of the people, I don't know what most is, but certainly a majority of the people did not have faith in the household of God. They were not believers. They're not getting into heaven. God emancipated them, but they didn't believe in him. So it was the remnant of, What does it Paul say, God say through Paul in Romans chapter 9? Though the numbers of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. And so these men represent the the unfaithfulness of these few, these ten, represent the unfaithfulness of the larger portion of Israel. All written for our instruction. It's not meant to terrify us, but you remember the guys said to uh, Jesus said, one of you will betray. One. And what did each guy say? One, just one. portray What did each of the other 11 say? Is it I? Is it I? But it's better to find out that perhaps your faith needs some reexamination when we still are in the realm of where that is possible than if it's not. Now we have the the order of these 12 uh, tribal spies. And so these 12 tribal spies... Remember, the Book of Numbers opens with a couple of... This is why people don't preach through it. Who in their right mind would preach through Numbers? But you have these, the, the a census, the census for the warriors is, is Numbers 1, maybe 2, uh, 1 and 2. And then later in 3 and 4, you have the census for the Levites. And so we don't have Levites. The tribe of Levi is excluded here. And I want to cite, say it's the, tri- the half-tribe of Ephraim that takes its place to make up the 12. So these 12 men are not the same 12 men that are listed as the tribal leaders in uh, Numbers chapter 1. And the reason is this. Let's just call the the tribal leaders in Numbers 1 the generals or the colonels. You generally don't send your general out on a reconnaissance mission into the enemy territory. You have foot soldiers for that. You need your general or your your colonel to do the commanding from the rear while you send your foot soldiers out. So these are different men. Again, kind of a division of uh, labor kind of a thing. And then the way that the men are listed, they're not listed out in the order of the birth order of the 12 um, uh, leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. I'll, I'll read that for you. This is the birth order for the 12 leaders for the 12 tribes of Israel, youngest to oldest, uh, uh, Jacob and, uh, and then his uh, four, um, two wives and two concubines. Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, so one, two, three, four. And then Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, uh, Joseph, and Benjamin, uh, 11 and 12. And then the, 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 the order here starts with Reuben first, Simeon two. Then we skip over Levi, and Levi skipped over because he's not in the warrior class. God has the division of labor that Levi and those descending from him are the priestly class. So he has other labor for them. So we skip over three, we go to four. And then Isar, Issachar nine, I'm not going to go through it, but Ephraim is the half tribe. And as I say, they make up for, um, for Levi to, to get the 12th. The and is Ephraim, was it Ephraim and Manasseh? So Joseph has uh, two children, at least two children, two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh with his Egyptian wife in Egyptian slavery, and... Um, And she's the the priest of On's daughter, and he has children. And so this boy, is uh, his dad's a Jew, and his mom's an Egyptian. Just this, again, we saw it last week with the Cushite woman being married to Moses, and of course then she's, she's within the Israelitish genealogy, and so for that matter is Ruth, and so for that matter is Rahab. Read the genealogy of Jesus. And now we have an Egyptian woman in the genealogy of the church, as it were. So if you hear people talk about pure race and that kind of thing, it's just, it's beyond silly to me. I I promise I won't. It's a hobby horse of mine. I promise I'm going to leave it alone. But it's beyond, beyond silly. Ephraim's mom is an Egyptian. And then we, I mean... And poor David's what's great grandmother, she was Ruth, the, the, the Rahab, the Canaaniteish prostitute, uh, and, and so we have that. We have an extra comment about uh, Hosea or Joshua. So his birth name is Hosea, and it means from the root word of salvation. And so it's it's not given. It's 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 assumed God is Hosea, salvation. That's just assumed. You know that. Modern Jews, I I suppose, that are more persnickety, and I don't mean that in a bad sense, uh, or scrupulous, they won't mention, they won't say the name God or Lord. You've seen how they do this. They'll go G-D. You've seen them do that. So it's supposedly not to break the third commandment, taking the name of the Lord God in vain. Maybe it seems... Pious, to me it seems sinful and silly because God is the one who gives his names and so we should use them. If God says use it and man says don't use it, to have an extra rule that God doesn't have is Pharisaism. But be that as it may. So there's the assumed God and then Hosea, salvation. And what Moses does is he adds the Hebrew, and I'll butcher it, the the, the, the letter is Yod. It's a little, he uses Yod for Yah. Yah is salvation. Now this is the Joshua. Now he adds it. Your covenantal God, Yahweh, is your salvation. Yahweh will, Joshua, save you. Think back to Joshua chapter 1. Be strong. Be strong in the Lord. Do not fear. I am your salvation. And the greater than Joshua is the one that saves us. But God, the Holy Spirit, inspires Moses to give this extra measure of confidence to to Joshua. We don't see Joshua giving a speech in this chapter. We do in chapter uh, 14. So Caleb is faithful. Joshua is faithful. The other guys are not faithful. So then we have the, the 12 guys. And then the practical instructions in 17 through 20. And then in 21 through 25, the men are diligent. So, so far, everything looks good. It looks like it's going swimmingly. I want you to go up there, check everything out, check the land, check the people. Yep, they go up, check the land, check the people. They bring back some of the physical fruits of the land. And and essentially what they say is, look, God's word actually came true. Look, when he said it's flowing with milk and honey, look, God's word is true. I watched, um, who was it? There's one talking head debating another talking head. And it was William Lane Craig, which I know he has some strange things, but I love him. I don't know why I love him, but I love him. He's an apologist. And someone said to him, if I could find a mistake in the Bible or something, some historical thing in the Bible, would you not believe the Bible? He said, no, I'm always going to believe the Bible. Because I I don't believe that you're going to... But if I could find it, no, because I'm not even going to believe what you... I'm always going to believe in the Bible. I don't care what anything comes against me even if I'm weak even if you could no I'm always going to believe that and and then people say well this is like a psychopath this is a who, 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 who reasons like this and I'm waving at the computer that would be me we don't need someone saying look here look because then the moment they say look here no what happens we don't believe anymore so I'm happy that they brought it back but if they didn't bring back a toothpick, the land is going to be flowing with milk and honey. Why? That's Caleb's point. Because God says it's going to. But then as soon as they, they give the good report, look, look at this wonderful fruit. Then immediately, you, you, you know you're going to hear this, but when unbelief really wants to, <laughs> to, to disobey, you're going to hear, yes, 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 but. Look at verse 27. What does it say? Nevertheless. Yeah, God's word is totally true. Yes, it's just fabulous. Nevertheless. And what's going to happen next? We can't obey God. This is the word of man. This is the fear of man. This is unbelief. This is sin at its core. We can't obey God. Why? Because we're going to die. The Puritans would say, and I know people say they're a bunch of loons. I love them. It's better to die than to sin. I want to believe that. I tell myself to believe it. <laughs> I'm afraid to die. But that's the fact of it. It's better to die than to sin against God. And they say, we can't obey God because we're going to die. God says, no, no. You're going to die, all right, for disobeying me. The wages of sin is death. So these guys say, we can't go up. And I'm, I'm going to be briefer. It's in my notes. If, you're, if you want to put yourself on the church email, you'll get all my manuscripts. I'll send them every week. So they say there are these giants, these sons of Anak there. And actually, in, the, in the, 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 the text says, it mentions a couple of people that the Bible says are really large people. Amorites are really large, descendants, I think, of Canaan. And so um, then you, you have the uh, Nephilim. <laughs> this is back when we were in Tallahassee. There was a guy that was, was obsessed with Nephilim. This is Genesis chapter 6. This is the pre-Diluvian giants. And, the, and, and the, the, the spies come back and they say, everyone is a giant. And they mention the Anak and emirites and so on, and then the, the Nephilim, they're giants. Now, were, to be fair to these men, were these men large? Were they large human beings? Uh, yeah, the Bible actually says that there are these large human beings, and the Amorites are uh, large human beings. Sometimes, depending on the language, I think there's a word, emim, it means the terrors. And then in another language, in a canaanite language, was zazumim, it means the same thing. But there are like five or six or seven tribal peoples that the Bible says they're tall as cedars and they're as strong as oaks. And then the Bible will give us names. I think there are five actually named giants In the Bible, obviously, Goliath is a famous one. How big was Goliath? Let's just suppose these guys are even close to Goliath's size. Goliath was, what was he? A cubit's 18 inches. So Goliath is something like nine feet tall and something like 500 to 550 pounds plus. And then Og was the king of Bashan, another giant. His bed frame is 14 foot by six foot bed. Now, you know the story of Goldilocks. She walks in, there's the big bed, there's the little, the middle bed, (laughs) there's a little bed. If you walk in and there's a 14 foot long bed, let's say the guy's not 14 feet long. I mean, our beds are what, six and a half feet? (laughs) If you have a 14 foot long bed, the human being that sleeps in that bed is large. Now, was Goliath nine feet tall? Yeah. Do we believe that there was a person nine feet tall? Yeah. Yeah, we do. I totally do. The Bible says it. And then there's another guy that David's one of David's mighty men goes down into a pit. You remember this story? And there's a, a, a giant uh, uh, Egyptian. He's seven and a half feet tall and the Jewish guy grabs his sword or his spear out of the Egyptian hand and he kills him with it. Seven and a half foot tall. guy is big. Nine foot big. And if, if Og... Is even close to his bed that's enormous now I have mentioned this before it's kind of a silly anecdote um, I grew up in New England and I watched wrestling in the 70s as a kid Andre the Giant was a wrestler he was from France and he had some kind of giganticism something with his thyroid some guys are just big and proportionally they're, they're proper but not him and I saw him. We were going somewhere, and a guy by the name of Stan, the man Stasiak, in the Boston Logan Airport. And Andre the Giant was like seven foot two, and four or five hundred pounds. He was a giant. He, you know, when you go through the, the the little metal detector, he did one of these. Well, add another two feet to that. These are, like, you can't even imagine how, how you could go online right now, you could could do it tonight and say, Andre the Giant holding a beer can. It looks like you're holding, like, a child holding a thimble. It's ridiculous. So let's be fair to these guys. They walk in, there's these large human beings, and you're thinking, you can't stand 50 yards away with a rocket launcher. (laughs) You've got to get, get somewhat close. Do you want to fight these men? God had previously told the guys, the Anakim are going to be there. But then he said this. This is before they get in. This is before this. Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go into the dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and and tall, the sons of the Anakim. Whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Get ready. Know therefore today that it is I, the Lord your God, who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. And so ten of the spies say, We cannot do this. You have one sole voice, that's Caleb. His name means dog. He was born and raised a slave, but all these people were born and raised slaves. Later, Joshua will chime in with a a, uh, a speech of fidelity in chapter 14. But Caleb is the sole voice that says, don't listen to these men. Obey God. And I just want to make this one application. I promise I'll be quiet. Human beings are social creatures. We have been designed by God to live in societies. The three societies in which God has placed us is family, church, and state. Very few people, very few people can walk alone and live alone. We're not created by God to do that. We are created to live in community with other people. We are created by God to do that. It is very difficult for us to go against the flow of the majority. It is very difficult. The minority report is correct. The majority report is wrong. The minority report is faithfulness to God. The majority report is infidelity to God. How fine I can make an application of that, if the majority is doing a thing, can I categorically say it's an expression of the flesh and not fidelity? No, but I want to. I want to. I almost want to say it's usually the major the minority of even the expressing people of God that fear God more than they fear man, that will obey the word of God even if it puts them in opposition to the word of man. Beloved, when you fear, man more than you fear God, which I do all the time. When you're tempted to obey the word of man out of fear, rather than the word of God, which I do all the time, the recourse for us is is to repent, is to confess our sin, to confess our fear, and to cast ourselves back on the greater than Joshua, and he will fight our battles. He will forgive our infidelity. He will forgive our, our and exchange our fear for courage. But these these forefathers stand as a great warning um, to um, some of these things. Uh, may God be be pleased with the preaching of His word.